When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Calm... Let's try that again. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Deborah Philman, who is working on a YouTube channel that explores the problems that she sees within the United States public education sector. And those problems are many, and they go back really deep. And we get into that, and we get into her personal story as well. And then we get into alternatives. But her stance at this point is that we need to abolish this whole system of education, that lawsuits won't really work, that showing up to school boards won't really work, that you know berating your teachers for being too woke won't really work. She thinks that the entire system is faulty, and she recommends the divestment of people's individual children from that system. And she also has, because she's a mother herself and has looked into this situation and this topic for some time, she's got resources and alternatives to, you know, just I guess, you know, either having kids in this woke state school or just running about on the street like a bunch of little pickpockets. There's this whole thing about homeschooling, as they call it, that she gets into as well. It's a very important, powerful conversation, in my humble opinion. And I would doubt if anybody else disagrees with that assessment. But, you know, everybody's got their own opinion, including Deborah Philman. So I'll let her fill you in on hers. How are your feelings today? <laughs> My feelings are are fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. What have you been uh, paying attention to? Um, well, I've been paying attention to some things going on in New York with um, a petition going around to strike. Uh, um, preschool from teachers. From the teachers unions yeah. going to strike yeah. because they're not getting their way. Pretty much, yeah. They there are some people who want to. They say safer strike. They want all the kids to be vaccinated, all the twelve year olds and above. They want a virtual option for the kids below twelve. They basically want to go back to pretending it's last winter, only with a vaccine, only they they have no faith in. So, and forty percent of their members are not vaccinated. So it's interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah. So that's the UFT which falls under Randy Weingarten, even though she's AFT, UFT is still kind of under her umbrella. And um, I had I was on a call with her and some other parents a couple weeks ago. I got invited onto a private call, and she said that she was not for mask mandates, is basically the impression she gave us, but she intimated that she was for vaccine mandates. She, she's noncommittal in everything she says, but if you read between the lines, she would say things like, it's a shame it's not approved yet by the FDA, or we'll have to wait and see what happens when they approve it, you know, when the FDA approves it, which to me was a signal that when they do, it's on, hmm. it will be required. So, um, yeah, so I, because my goal is abolition of the government schools, did you not know that? <laughs> No, it's just a strong word, so I wanted to give it its due eyebrow-raising. Yes, I, I've been very forward about that of late because 
I've spent the past year doing a deep dive into how these schools work and how they're sort of like, it's such a complicated matrix of power structures that it, you can't, it's not just peeling an onion. It's not just replacing one school board or even replacing a governor or it, 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 it there, there's just, they've spent the last hundred years building their own defense system, making it so arcane and so hard to unravel that you would, you really would have to abolish it. You'd have to walk away to avoid what it is or abolish it. Well, we can't abolish it if we're in it. That's not going to happen. Um, so I kind of look at abolition of slavery. It took 35 years from it when it really began in earnest. And when we had emancipation, about 35 years. And who would have thought at the time when it started that they would succeed? Most people would have said, you're kidding, right? <laughs> you know, like You're not going to get rid of slavery in the South. And it did take a war. And obviously, nobody wants to go to war over public schools. But I also don't think this is as big a problem, believe it or not, as trying to solve slavery. I think that that seemed like a bigger problem even to the people at the time. I think what we have here is something completely immoral that if people are properly informed and educated about why it's immoral and why it's wrong, they will start to rethink its sacred cow nature. Right now, if you say, I want to abolish the public schools, you sound like an extremist. You sound like a crazy person. But if you start to ask questions like, what is the moral argument for compelling parents to turn their children over to the government when they're six or seven years old So, in a free society? When you speak about this institution or this behemoth uh, starting 100 years ago or something like that to become what it is, do you think that it was inevitable that it would end up where it is? And where is it now? And where did it start? Well, you know, it started... It started in earnest in Massachusetts um, with the kind of first compulsory public schools. We've always had some kind of, you know, town schoolhouse, but usually organized by the people of a town. And it wasn't compulsory. You know, it was like, hey, let's get together and have a schoolhouse and that'll be great. Let's hire a teacher and put all the kids in there and teach them how to read and write and so forth. But if you had if you need your kid on the farm, you know, nobody was going to come to the door with a gun and say, bring your kid. Um, but. About 100 years, actually a little longer than that, but in Massachusetts, they decided, no, we're not going to allow it to be voluntary anymore. And this was instigated by immigration. We had these big waves of Catholic, Catholic immigrants and the people in charge were very afraid of the Catholicism. They were afraid of them being papists and bringing their Catholic ideas. So they wanted to be good little Protestant Anglo-Saxon, whatever, you know, wanted them to be socialized into the United States. So they set up not just public schools, which were kind of already in existence, but made them compulsory. And in particular, the immigrant parents did not like it. They fought it. They knew what was going on. It was transparent. They weren't even trying to hide it, really. And um, you also had more free blacks moving up from the South. And there was an impulse to socialize them as well, segregated perhaps, but socialize everybody to follow the same rules. Now, where did they get the idea for the model? They got the idea from Prussia. What model should we use? Well, they like kind 1890s. Of like, yeah. Prussia, which is what yeah. informed the generation that would later come to sweep through Europe. Pretty much. Yeah. 
So they liked this model of school where you only educated the people enough to be very loyal to their country, very loyal to the state, very loyal to the norms. You know, you socialized them and you taught them enough to be functional in the kind of economy you had. And that's about it. And anybody who would aspire to more, you know, let's say a, a child of the elite already was going to be in a different kind of school anyway. This is for everybody else, right? You know, everybody who isn't already in the ruling class. And to me, this is already anti-American. If you think back to the revolutionary mind, you know, the founders, this already was bringing in a sort of class hierarchy that was not what they envisioned at all. You know, that you'd have this narrow elite up at the top. They could go to private schools. They could, you know, go to private colleges and everybody else, all these immigrants that were coming into work in factories and so forth, the industrial revolution, they would just be put in almost factory style schools, taught to read and write well enough to work in the factory or work in a store or something like that. And that's about it. They, they were not really meant to aspire to college and graduate school and all of this stuff. And they liked the Prussian model because it was so regimented. And it was designed to inhibit the development of individual aspiration, if you will, give mm. you just enough to function and get a job. And graduating from 12th grade was like, good, now you can go get a job. It wasn't a precursor to anything else, like more education. Okay. So that, that's basically it, the start of it. Is there an alternative model to that? Uh, can you mass... Uh, manufacturer the individual aspiration or the individual aspirist? No, you can't. So you can't mass manufacture individuals. I mean, people aren't widgets. And so if you, people have asked me, well, you know, what would you have done instead? And I'm like, well, that presupposes there was a problem. So I reject the notion that we had to socialize the Catholics. I mean, what did they do? They responded by creating Catholic schools. And then Various states tried to outlaw Catholic school. They tried to outlaw private school, and they lost. And thankfully, to this day, there is precedent in the Supreme Court that you, you know, the parent parental rights don't stop at the schoolhouse door. If parents want to educate their children on their own, um, in their own values, they have that right. And that's why homeschooling is still legal too, because there is that precedent. People every year talk about making it illegal. The people at Harvard with their education school would love to make it illegal. And treat all parents as if we're all abusing our children behind closed doors. But um, mm. that that is the precedent. And it was because they knew their children are going to be taught values and religion other than their own. In those days, you could do prayer in school. They could teach them to be Protestants. They could do those things, even though it was America. That came later. Um, so what people were doing before is educating their own children. Or as I said, you know, in various towns or little cities, they would create their own school, their own little schoolhouse. It was neither compulsory nor was it paid for through tax dollars confiscated by force. You would contribute to it or maybe you would pay locally or it might be a bond or there might be something locally. But it wasn't like the government came and said, you're going to pay for this no matter what, whether you use it or you don't, whether you have children or you don't, you're going to pay for it. That's new. And again, my question for people today is, what's the moral argument? And the answer I usually get is, well, it's in our best interest that we have an educated society. Sure, it was then too. Nobody disputes that. But does it not, does it then follow logically that it's the state's job to do it? Just because we agree that something is valuable, it's valuable that we eat a healthy diet. Should the government provide us all with a healthy diet? I mean, it would cost a lot less, right, if people were less obese. But hmm. we aren't suddenly going and saying, provide us with state grocery stores that hand out broccoli every day, and you must pay for the broccoli, whether you're eating the broccoli or not. I mean, it, I mean, I hate to use these 
analogies, but mm-hmm. some of the arguments I don't think are well thought out. Yes, it is desirable to have an education, an educated population. That doesn't mean we didn't have one prior to compulsory school. In fact, we did. We had at the time of the revolution, not not counting slaves, of course, we had over 90% literacy without any of these schools. So, and in fact, if you go back and read primary sources, you will find that even farmers and pastors and people were walking around with copies of John Locke in their pocket. They were carrying around pamphlets by Thomas Paine. They were teaching their kids these things at home when they were seven, eight years old. To be a Lockean was equivalent to being a Kendian today. <laughs> it really was. It really was. They were that enamored of these people. So there was so, an educated attitude or culture. Yes. Yeah. Correct. So it was embedded in that culture. That comes from a particular time and place when you start to have waves and waves of immigrants. And then you also stop, um, I mean, the, the walls between the white Protestant waspy people and the other, you know, the natives and then the people in the South and people on the left. There's always this mixing going on. And sure. some of that culture is not going to be into being educated. Uh, as opposed to other cultures and the cultures that aren't into educating their children or would rather them, uh, you know, uh, just naturally or what, for whatever reason, they don't apply a certain sort of just literate education and expectation to their young, they will fall behind over time. And then you're going to have this natural class uh, just based on ability uh, hierarchy that shakes well, out. Well, I, I would standardize that, that somehow. I would, I would challenge that. In, in, in a couple of respects. First of all, it takes a certain amount of gumption and intelligence to decide you're going to leave everything you have. I mean, my great grandparents did it on both sides behind, get on a ship and go to the complete unknown and make your fortune, make your way. That is not something that people who don't, first of all, take a lot of place, a lot of uh, value on personal responsibility would do. That is not, you know, so in other words, the personal values that most of the people had coming in those waves were pretty decent. They weren't expecting a handout. They certainly weren't getting one on the other end, and we didn't have a welfare society. So they knew they were coming into a situation where, first of all, they had to bring with them enough money to pay for their passage back. Because you, if you arrived and you weren't let in for whatever reason, you're sick, or you didn't have a sponsor, or whatever, you had to go back. You couldn't just stay. So they knew that. They had to research that. They had to know that. And then once they arrived, they were also assessed as far as you know all kinds of other things. Well, what are your skills? What can you do? There are ways for a culture and a society to maintain standards yeah. and, maintain, and maintain incentives that incentivize the teaching of children. As I said, the adults who came were all at least in most cases literate in their own language. I would say the vast majority of them were, or they wouldn't have been able to get here. And then once they got here, they would have had a heck of a time. And, you know, we think in terms of more modern waves of immigrants, but in those days, these are not illiterate or ignorant people. They were just poor. And I don't like um, perpetuating the myth that just because somebody is poor or not doing well in their own country, they're ignorant or they're illiterate. Not the case. Again, you know, my great grandparents were Jews from Lithuania and they were, you know, they had trade. They were illiterate. They just were escaping the latest wave of pogroms. (laughs) So Hmm. they took great pride in education. Um, A lot of people and, and certainly, too, if you want your kids to read their Bible, you want them to read. They immediately set up the Catholic schools. These these immigrants wanted their kids to have education. They didn't want them to have indoctrination even then. So 
I understand the need and there will probably always be the, you know, the little urchins running in the street. We see them in movies and so forth. You know, they're always those kids who don't really have parents or they're orphans or whatever. And there is, there is an interest. However, there were also nonprofits. I mean, we forget there's charity. We forget their churches. We forget there are other people privately who can, and if properly incentivized, would likely step in and fill that void. My concern is that we keep turning to the state. And it is, when you, you asked me initially, was it inevitable? I think when you hand power of education to the government, it is too great a temptation, even if it's not conscious initially, it is too great a temptation for whoever is in power when you set that up to set it up in a self-serving way. And then when power shifts, then the new power structure comes in and says, hmm, how can we redo this so it's in our best interest to remain in power? And the conflict of interest is not only obvious, but it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger because the people who decide that power is an end in itself will then set about des designing the system, adding to the system, changing the narrative, changing the PR such that they can keep securing the system, making the system per just permanent. And that's where we are now. We have arrived at a place where reforming it from the outside in, in my personal opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion, is impossible. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. And so given that, and given the negative impact of generations of, you know, of, we already have, I would say, at least two generations now of people who are um, appallingly ignorant given the demands of modern society and what we need to do, even if you just take climate change. If you're a person who's concerned about the climate, then you should be very concerned about what's going on in math and science teaching. If we do not rescue that from this woke stuff, we won't be able to even attempt to solve those problems. So, you know, we have big problems to solve, and yet we're not teaching kids in a way that they'll be able to solve them. They aren't going to necessarily be able to solve their own problems hmm. um, in a rational way. And I think it's because the system is now just the system. John Taylor Gatto wrote 25 years ago, after 30 years in teaching in public school and winning all kinds of awards for it, he wrote the same thing, that it needed to go away. And that was 25 years ago. He said, the system is what it is. The, the method is the madness. Hmm. And so, um, you know, I started off as a public school teacher. I was one of those naive 20-somethings who thought I was going to go in within the system and try to do better and try to at least help the kids in my class. And I left after two years because it was made abundantly clear to me I was not wanted. In that my mindset. Respect. Well, I went to a graduate program at University of Pennsylvania that was focused on teaching the individual child. It was called Student Teachers as Researching Teachers, START. And one of the key components was keeping a journal about your students. And you were meant to observe each individual student and get to know each individual student so that you could meet their individual needs, even with a classroom of 30 kids. I took it very seriously. I learned economies of scale. I learned how to do it. I learned how to do it well. And having done that, I realized it can be done. It absolutely can be done. When you hear this, oh, there's too many kids and too much stuff. That from a teaching perspective, it absolutely can be done. From an administrative perspective, it cannot be done. So what got in my way was that I placed more value on teaching the individual kids and doing my administrative paperwork and, you know, 
kissing my principal's butt and doing all that kind of stuff and making sure I was pleasing the union people and not working one minute over the hour I was supposed to work without getting approval for overtime and all this other stuff. And I kept saying, but I need to help my kids and they need this, my students. And um, I just kept saying, you know, you can't do that. That's not how it's done. And when I say I wasn't wanted, meaning I had two choices, become the teacher they wanted me to be or leave. And I wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do. I, for whatever reason, I just felt like my integrity mattered more than the job. So I left. Um, and I don't mean and, to sound like, oh, I'm so awesome. I just couldn't do it. I well, literally yeah. couldn't do it. And what happened with all those skills that you had? Did they just atrophy? And No, because those, skill, those skills then went into tutoring. I've pretty much tutored okay. ongoing since then. I tutored college kids at Northwestern. I was still in Chicago at the time. I tutored college kids. I tutored kids um, in Boston. I tutored when I lived there. Um, I've pretty much always put myself out there, no matter what other job I was doing for tutoring, whether volunteer or paid. So I was always doing something with kids to help them do better in school. And then when I had my own children, I started off homeschooling them. So obviously the skills were not wasted. Um, but life circumstances were such that I was literally forced to put them in school. And, um, they came out one by one as they had <laughs> mental health needs to come out. I kept trying to get them out because they were begging to come out and I was told no. And, um, then it became apparent it was a life or death situation for the two eldest. And then the younger, youngest one came out when COVID hit. Hmm. So yeah, I had one, one child, um, already had ADD. I knew about that, but developed a severe anxiety disorder. And what we later learned was I went undiagnosed Asperger's girls mask it very well. So, you know, she just was deemed shy. Okay. And she was a very good student. So people just felt like she's just shy and a good student when in fact, you know, an awkward and so forth. But in fact, she had extremely high anxiety and it was driving her crazy. So she came out, um, after ninth grade. And then my next daughter, younger, um, came out suffering anorexia. So she left school because she was having to go into a residential facility. Do you think that that was uh, related to the environment of the school, the social environment, or just 100%. the structure? Okay, so 100%. like like social uh, contagion, which is a. Uh, um, yeah, there was some of that. There in her school, there was a lot of talk about people being too normy. Um, so there, you know, she got a lot of that. There were a lot of kids were coming out as non-binary by yeah. this, that, the, you know, there was, they reorganized the library and I did teach at that school as a volunteer. I taught debate for a year for to sixth and seventh graders. Cause I wanted to be in the school and close to the school and seeing what was going on at that point. I had two kids there and it was a charter, a public charter that I'd moved them to because the same daughter had been bullied in the regular public school pretty brutally. I was volunteering at the time over there to keep my eyes on things and witnessed her being bullied with my own eyes. The girl didn't know I was her mom. I was just in the hallway and I saw it. Um, and so pulled her out, put her in a charter, then my youngest in the same charter, hoping it would be better. It was a lab school, you know, those they could say, you know, lab. And they talked a good game, but from, and the elementary school was okay. Then Trump got elected and I don't know what happened. It's like everyone devolved into some kind of bizarre madness. They lowered the flag to half mass. The teachers were wearing black. Wait, wait, they wait, had, wait, 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 seriously? Yeah. You know, I'm serious. God. Yeah. Okay, sorry. They, they, the teachers were crying. They were giving people excused absences. They set up a room for kids to go cry in. 
They offered counseling. I mean, they made no bones about it that they were, this was a day of mourning. And they also had, they started having Black Lives Matter um, lessons and protests in the school. They had a gun walk, a walkout for gun violence. Things started getting really political. And then they reorganized the library at the middle school, according to victim groups. So it was like, here are all the books about, you know, victims of sexual assault. Here are all the books about victims of homophobia. Here are all the, you know, and if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it. My daughter told me, and I said, no way. I, you know, I didn't believe it. I felt like you're kidding, right? So I went and I saw it and I was just blown away. Um, then when I was teaching in the debate class, I kind of came face to face with some of the beliefs the kids had, the sixth and seventh graders. Um and how and one girl actually said at one point when I was trying to do definition of terms and we were talking about terms like rich and poor, I said, this is a good place to start. Everybody thinks they know what they mean. But for the purposes of the cl this class, I want to teach you about this. And as I was explaining and they were giving their definitions, one of the girls flipped out and she said, I'm so triggered right now. You're triggering me. And I said, I'm sorry. Can you explain what's going on with you? And she said, rich means this. And she was like adamant, adamant that and it had to do with race that white people were rich, like by default, but she was black by default and that black people were poor. And so I said to her, I said, well, let's look at that. What about Oprah, Michael Jordan? You know, I started naming these different people and she's like, that's different. And I said, okay, that's kind of my point. It is. There are exceptions. There are, you know, there is no set rule. And then I started naming some other names that were a little less, you know, like doctors and lawyers and so forth and politicians and Tim Scott and this one and that one. And she still wouldn't let it go. She's like, yes, but, but, but I, I can't be here right now. I can't be here right now. This is sixth grader. And I thought her emotional reaction just didn't align with reality. And this is already about three years ago. I think it's at least three years ago. And I just thought, what is going on with these kids that they can't handle the smallest challenge to their thought process, even from an adult old enough to be their parent? They can't. And then some other events came up, like they took uh, the science teacher who was black, took an only minority group of girls to a girls in STEM conference in D.C. And when she organized it, she organized it in the classroom on school time, she got all excited. She was looking at her computer, my daughter said, and she's like, you know, motioned some girls to come over to her, some black and Hispanic girls to come over to her. And she's like, look what's coming up. Let's go, whatever. And my daughter, who wants to actually be in animal science when she was, she said, can I go? And she said, no, you can't. It's only going to be. And it wasn't a conference for STEM for minority girls. It was for girls. It was for females in STEM. And she said, no, you can't. And my daughter didn't understand and she came home and she asked me about it. And I asked the school about it. And they said, at first, they claimed to not know what I was talking about. And my daughter and sister said, Mom, this is really happening. And I said, well, they, they're claiming they don't know what's going on and they don't know what I'm talking about. So maybe it's private. Maybe it's, she, she organized it in class. Well, next thing I know, my daughter's sending me an Instagram video of the teacher on the metro with these students wearing Barack Obama t-shirts and jumping up and down and singing, we don't like Trump, we don't like Trump. They were doing like a little anti-Trump dance. And then I saw also that one of the moms who went with them posted video from the conference itself showing them, you know, wearing their school t-shirts to identify them as being from the school. So at that point, I wanted a meeting. And I met with, uh, well, first thing I did was um, I, I I called the school, I asked for a meeting, asked about it. They kept putting me off. So I called a friend of mine who's a journalist here in North Carolina. And I said, I think I might have a story for you. This is, this is a mess. 
but I need to find out first what the details are and so forth. She said, all right, well, I can probably get the details faster than you if they're giving you the brush off. Let me call and ask for comment. So she had the video. She called and asked for comment. And they immediately responded to me and called me in for a meeting with the chairman of the board of the charter. So I thought, okay, this is good. You know, he's interested to find out what's going on. And I went with my husband and with, um, who's their stepdad and then one other father. No, I couldn't get anyone else to go with me. I called all kinds of other parents that I'd spoken to over the past year who agreed with me about a variety of issues. None of them would go. Oh no, I couldn't possibly stick my neck out. I don't want to be on their radar. I don't want to do this. It was already starting with this fear of like, you know, I agree with you, but good luck to you. I can't go. Okay. So it was the three of us. First thing they wanted to make clear to me was that if I went to the press and if I told the press this, that I was harming children, that I was harming their ability to get a high school started, that he's like, I'm raising money for a high school and you're going to be, you're going to be the reason that these kids don't have a high school. And I said, well, can you explain what's going on? He said, no school money was used. I said, it happened during the week and the teacher was given time off. She had vacation time coming. I said, doesn't matter. She's still being paid to go there. It's still her, her salary is still paid for by the school and you had to hire a sub, right? No, we just put the kids in other classrooms. Okay. How is that fair to their learning? They were put off into other classes. Their teacher was gone. And how do you explain the fact that it was only minorities that is segregated? Well, I can't speak to that, but it wasn't, it wasn't under the school auspices. I said they had their t-shirts on. They announced during, I saw a video of them announcing what school they were from and the teacher representing she was from the school. Well, she did that without asking us. So we'll have to have a chat with her. I said, don't you think that more than a chat is warranted here? How about the kids who didn't get to go? How about my daughter? How about her being told you can't go because you're white? What, what do you have to say about that? Well, I don't have anything to say about that. You know, your daughter has opportunities that they don't have because she's white. And then it became this conversation about race when the white director of the school was sitting there and, we, and then we got into a big debate about affinity groups and so forth and so on. And I challenged everything she said. I said, I disagree with you. I, what I'm seeing and what I saw when I was teaching that class is I'm seeing some very fragile kids. I'm seeing kids who can't take any criticism, who are triggered by the smallest little thing, who are seating themselves in a small classroom with the black kids on one side and the white kids on the other side without anybody saying a word. They're just parent. They're just like sequestering themselves off into different sides of the room. Um, I'm seeing the ones who are friends and talking to each other feeling like they're subservient, you know, like they serve the black students. I said, I'm seeing these things. I said, my daughter was disciplined because she stood on the playground at recess with three other friends, one of whom went to a Trump rally, girl went to a Trump rally. It was like Trump for women or something. And she was sitting at recess talking to these friends, like in this regular conversational voice away from other people. Because they're not stupid. They know that the rest of the kids were not into this. And even my daughter wasn't really. She was just standing with her friends. And this one girl was like, yeah, I went to this Trump rally. Another kid's walking by. And he heard Trump rally, Hispanic boy. And he comes over and he says, did I just hear you say Trump rally? And she said, yes. This is the girl speaking. And he says, how could you do that? How could you do that? You racist. He starts screaming at her right up in her face. And he says, he starts screaming, fuck Trump, fuck Trump. Like the kid is a sixth grader. And she's just like, he says, say it, say fuck Trump. And he kept saying, like, point going like this to the kids. And there was a tall boy with them. He's like, hey, hey, back off, you know, back off, kid. The kid was like up in their faces, threatening them and screaming at them. And my daughter's just standing back by a tree, like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Teacher comes running over, takes all the kids into the office. And they, they had a restorative justice conversation. 
And in this restorative justice, they all had to apologize to each other. They had to all apologize to each other. So this kid who was like threatening to initiate force against him for not cursing out the president of the United States, he was, you know, told, well, you shouldn't do that. And then the kids, including my daughter, were told, now you need to acknowledge how hurt and threatened he was by the subject of your conversation. And you need to acknowledge to him his, his feelings. At no point was it, this is totally inappropriate. It's a free country. They can talk about what they want. Get over yourself or some softer version thereof. No. <laughs> no. Hmm. You know, age appropriate version of that. No. It was like all of you. And my daughter got in the car. She's spitting mad. So when I say that, you know, the social environment is here's a kid who for two years, she was at that school for two years. So this happened to her like the first month into eighth grade. So sixth grade and seventh grade. She's putting up with these kind of events over and over. First week of sixth grade. She comes home. She says, Mom, is Publix a racist grocery store? I said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, are we shopping at a racist grocery store? I said, um, back up. Why are you asking me this? <laughs> and she said, well, our Quest teacher, Quest is what they called like science and social mm. studies-ish stuff. He said that Publix is opening the new store in our neighborhood where her dad lived in our neighborhood because it's a rich white neighborhood and they're racist and they should have opened it in a poor black neighborhood, but it's because of food deserts. And they'd spent a month on food deserts and their supposed science class. And so I said, all right, okay, I, I see what's going on. All right. Let's open up the computer. So we open up the computer. We go to Publix. I look for site selection criteria. There it is. I look at how they draw that. They actually use the food desert model, which is a political thing, but they actually use it in their site selection. I show her in less than five minutes how they do site selection and how if you draw that circle around the new store, you encompass this neighborhood called Shamrock Gardens and a bunch of it's like very low income housing and the old elementary school she attended, which is 70% minority. My daughter was a minority in that school. And... She said, "Oh yeah, that 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 is a poor black neighborhood. <laughs> like it's 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 probably about fifty fifty where it's located if you draw the circle." And I said, "So what do you think? Do you think it's in a food desert, or do you think it's you know creating a food or anything like that?" And she's like, "No, I think it's really easy." And I said, "And how many jobs were created?" So we looked at how many people they were hiring. Think of all the people who get a job, and so forth and so on. And there are now three grocery stores. In this environment, it's not just one. Now we got like choices galore. Okay. So I said, so it's factually inaccurate, first of all. And I'm concerned that you were told that there was a value judgment made about a company. So we then looked up the management of the company and sure enough, the COO was black. <laughs> you know, so I was like, I don't think all told they're a racist grocery store. So of course she goes back to the school and she tells the teacher, you know, my mom says blah, blah. And I also likewise posted on the parent form. There was a parent Facebook forum saying, did any of, you know, where I said, did any of your kids hear the same thing? You know, are you guys hearing the same thing? And I wanted to share with them what I'd done in case they wanted to share the same information, you know, and my, it wasn't even up five minutes. My comment was taken down and I got a private note from the director of the school, that same woman who told me how great affinity groups were. She says, I'm very disappointed in you. And I'm thinking, I I've been a parent at your school of two years. You don't know me, lady. You have no right to expect anything for me to be disappointed in me. Like, I'm not your child. And she says, you should have come to me and you don't go putting teacher. I said, I didn't name a teacher. I said, the Quest teacher. Well, we only have one. So everybody knows who it is. I said, well, that that's his misfortune. You know, I'm like, I'm sorry. But A, I didn't know that because she's sixth grade. It's my first year in that particular school. I said, second of all, what difference is a private? It's a parent's Facebook group. 
what are you doing monitoring the parents' Facebook group? So this is how we started off on that foot, and it just kind of progressed from there. So I was that parent who kept asking questions, who kept wanting to know the reason for things, and I was the one who kept having to sit down for conferences and be told this is really good and the kids need to learn about equity and they need to learn about this and that and the other. And by the time eighth grade rolled around, my daughter had already kind of changed her personality. She was a kid who, when she first went to school, after being homeschooled, and she also has Asperger's, by the way, hers is even more obvious um, than my eldest daughter, um, because she's very, like, how do you how do you put it? She's a little nerdy, okay? Super good student, like the kind of student sits at her desk and like, you know, I'm going to do my assignment. Um and she went from loving school or loving learning, you know, the whole idea of it. I'm going to study really hard and I'm getting all my homework done to being the kind of kid who was withdrawn, didn't really talk about her learning, got in the car every day after school, just saying, can I listen to music, pulling a hoodie up over her head, sitting in the back seat, just totally inside of herself. And she fell in with a group of kids who were, I would say, fairly popular, but they also bought into all this stuff. Okay. They kind of bought into some of the narratives about it's cool to be different. You know, and she decided one of the boys in that group decided he wanted to, you know, date her eighth grade dating, whatever that is. You know, they go over to each other's houses and watch movies. And so during that summer, I would let her go over to the house. I knew the mom said, OK, you know, I knew her a little bit. You can watch movies over there with the other kids. By September, she said, you know, mom, it's getting a little intense and he's wanting to like touch me. He's wanting to hug me all the time. And he's telling me all kinds of really personal stuff. He's telling me his dad did things to him. And I, I knew the dad. I'm like, he really? He said, yeah, he's saying this and that. And I knew he lived with his mom, but his dad was like the other parent. And I'd met the dad and the stepmother and I'd met the mom. And let's just say I didn't believe it. I mean, I know that there are kids who get abused and, you know, the, the dad, p- parents can hide it and so forth. But I also knew the mom was a little bit of the type of person that might tell tall tales. Let's just say that she was very, her Instagram was like all about her. Like she's, half naked in her pictures. You know, I just was a little skeptical of the story. And so I told my daughter, I said, look, that sounds really deeply personal. And if it's true, he probably should talk to his parents or he probably should talk to somebody other than you. I don't want you taking on stuff that you don't feel comfortable with. It is, I talked to her about boundaries. I talked to her about, you know, emotional boundaries, physical boundaries. I said, you have a right to maintain those. And if you feel uncomfortable, it is totally okay for you to just stand up for yourself and say, I'm not comfortable with this. I'd really rather not hear this or rather not be in this kind of relationship. And we had this long talk and she said, yeah, you're right. I, I don't feel okay with this. I'm going to talk to him. I said, as my parting words, I said, that's good. I'm proud of you. I said, promise me you won't do it over text. Just, just promise me you will do it on the phone. You won't put it in writing. Just, you know, don't use text. Things don't translate very well in text. She said, mom, everybody talks in text is how kids do. I'm like, I know, but please don't. She ignored me. And next thing I know, her text to him, very nice note I later read, was excerpted all out of context. It was screenshot. It was taken around to all his friends. He socialized it around all his friends. She had broken his heart and hurt him and done all these things and led him on and blah, blah, blah. And so the girls in that group turned on her. They turned on her. I mean, can you imagine this in the Me Too movement that like the girl wants to break up the boy who's constantly wanting to touch her and hug her and everything and burdening her with supposed stories of molestation. And she's like, time out. I'm like 14. You know, (laughs) like I don't want to deal with this. And she's the bad guy. And she's got a big heart. 
And part of why she listened to the stories for so long is she felt really bad for him. She had a lot of compassion. So to tell her you're a bad person, you're you're mean, you're you broke his heart. You just, it really hit her hard. And like I said, with Asperger's, they don't have a great emotion management system as far as like the social thing. She took it on. And I didn't really know what happened for a good two weeks until I got a call from her dad that she had tried to um, hurt herself. And took her to the emergency room, or took her to the doctor. And I noticed she was really thin. And like she'd been not eating. And I said, can you check her weight? Because she's lost a lot of weight really fast. And she wasn't like emaciated, but she was definitely thinner than usual. And they did the depression inventory and everything. So well, we're more concerned about her mental state. She's very depressed. Take her to the behavioral health. Took her over. The whole assessment, long story short, I got a big lecture in the private part of it about stop talking to her about homeschooling. I said, what? Wait, who, well, who, she said, who was giving you this? One of the psychotherapists, to? you always meet with two when you go to behavioral health for children. So the child talks to somebody and then and, and you talk to that person, a different person, and then you swap. So they get two points of view. And that's when they find out when it's pri- they talk to the child privately, they find out if they're being abused and all that. When this one psychotherapist was talking to me, she said, why do you think she's so upset? Why do you think? And my, this daughter had been asking to come out of the school and be homeschooled too. And her do- her dad kept saying, no, 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 no. Um, so I said, well, I, I don't know. I know there's been problems with kids at school. I know there's some crazy ideas floating around and she feels on the outs and she's been very withdrawn. And I said, but I also know that for the last two years, she has wanted to be homeschooled again like she was when she was little and she was happy and joyful and learning. And her dad is saying no. And I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. I'm just telling you the facts. And she said, well, we don't support homeschooling. And you really need to stop talking to her about that, especially if she can't have it. I said, she's talking to me, like she's coming and begging me to do everything I can to convince her dad, which of course I was doing, including trying to hire lawyers and everything. And she said, um, she said, well, you need to stop that because we don't think it's appropriate. They need to be socialized, whatever. I said that that's the problem. That's literally the problem here is the socialization that's happening to my daughter is, is not working for her. And she's very upset. Her grades are falling, et cetera. Um, they said, well, she doesn't seem to have a plan to kill herself, but she does need a therapist, so we're going to release her. They released her. Her weight kept dropping, and it only took another two weeks before it was danger zone. And I took her in to have her heart checked, and they said, you need to check her in immediately. Like, she needs to go into a residential facility immediately. Her heart is not functioning properly. Um, and I learned a valuable lesson. You can't always tell when someone's in danger from anorexia by looking at them. I mean, she looked very thin, but she, you know, you usually see in movies like they're like bones – and she just looked like a very thin kid. Um, and in fact, even the pediatrician's like, no, she's in the normal range. And like, but for her, you know, like but, <laughs> she's lost like 20% of her body weight. And it's like for her, it's like, so anyway, um, she came out and then her dad kept saying, even after she, after she got out of the, the hospital and everything, he's like, well, when are you going back to school? When are you going back to school? And she's like, never, I'm not going back. And it's a lot harder to force a kid who almost died to go to do something. You know, I just kind of stood back at that point. I was like, I support her. Like I will do what it takes, you know? I mean, and he, at that point, I think he realized like, okay, I can't fight this anymore. And he let her stay home. But she's like, I have no intention of going back there. I don't want to see those kids ever again. And initially when the first text things went out and screenshot, I wanted to have a chat with the mom because I thought maybe they could stop because it, it kept going for days. They were doing more things and cyberbullying her and all this stuff. And I called the mom and I, and I approached her benefit of the doubt. I said, hey, I don't know if you know what's been going on with our kids. That, you know, kids get up to the crazy. Just stop right there. I, can, I just want to stop you right there. 
I know what's been going on. I said, okay, what's going on? And she said, well, it's like I tell my kids, if you put something in writing, it's on you. I said, but yes, I tell my kids the same thing. I told my daughter not to text, but the letter she wrote was actually a very nice letter. I read it. And there's really was no excuse for that. Well, you know, I mean, kids will be kids. And yeah, that's her fault. These kids and their phones. She wanted no part of it. And then she said, frankly, I'm really worried about what's happening to my son. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Apparently, the school found out through the grapevine because when my daughter attempted to put the belt around her neck, apparently she texted one of her friends or she said something to one of her friends about, I just want to die or I'm just going to kill my something right before she did it. That girl then went and told somebody else who told somebody else and it's, it got back to the school. Kids who weren't even involved, didn't even know her apparently, went to the school and said, this girl, you know, she was telling people that she was threatening suicide. The school took it upon themselves to call all the parents in her advisory, this like group they have of kids that, you know, meets once a week to talk about social issues or whatever, called all the parents of those kids to say, we just want to offer your child any support or counseling from the trauma they might have endured by being made aware of another child's suicidal ideation. They didn't call me. They didn't call my ex-husband. They didn't call to see how my daughter was. But they called all the other kids in the class to make sure they were okay and weren't suffering trauma from having been adjacent to my daughter's problems. Hmm. So that, you know, that, that pretty much that, so this woman is telling me she was worried about her son because, you know, he's traumatized now. He's traumatized because of your daughter and her, you know, her histrionics and her problems and she really needs help. Yeah, no shit. But they made it now. Now it's a bad thing. Now, my daughter's problem was their children's problem. Everybody was just trying to, it felt like everyone was trying to capitalize on other people's pain and nobody was real, nobody had any real compassion or any real empathy. It was all just optics and, 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 and words. And even when we sat down at one point to see if maybe she would go back to school, because my ex-husband insisted, we met with the counselor at the school. And she was like, well, would you like to have a meeting with the kids who did this? And my daughter's like, No. I don't ever want to sit in a classroom with them again. I don't want to be in the same building with them, much less have a conversation with them. And it just, the whole thing was such a mess. They didn't seem to have any understanding for any of this. And so she came out and she's gradually been getting better. I mean, got her back to, you know, regained her weight and got her back to physical health. But I can tell you that she's never really been the same as before she went to school. She's still very anxious. Um, she almost failed a couple classes last year in homeschool. I enrolled her in some online courses and she just, her motivation was in the, you know, was down in the dumps. She had very little self-esteem. She felt like, you know, is this what life is going to be like now? Where anytime I try to meet people or try to socialize because kids at this age are not oblivious to what's going on in the world. So even when you pull them out and I tell my audiences too, homeschooling is just, is kind of like triage, you know, like, or getting them out of that system is kind of a triage. You have other work to do, especially if they've been in it for a while. You need to build a community. You need to build a new support system for you and your kids. And it's not just good enough to get them out of school. You're not just running away. You're going to something new and better. And, but you have to take ownership of that because this is a world that these kids are living in now and they know it. And it's on, social media. And even my kids don't have 
Twitter or things like that, but they still get emails or they watch videos or whatever they can see or they do see uh, through TV entertainment, they're, they're not oblivious to what's happening in terms of woke stuff. And so they're depressed. They're like, well, how am I going to make friends? How am I, who are, who are going to be my friends? Um, when I don't think the way these people think I disagree. I mean, in other words, their heads are on straight as far as what reality is. Their heads are on straight about, you know, whether it's gender or race or whatever. I feel like I have three good little liberal kids. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they're very accepting, very loving, what I always wanted to have, you know, kind of kids. Um, but they don't buy into any of this other junk, this postmodern stuff. They're like, it's, it's whack. You know, I mean, they, they've lived with me long enough to know that like that, that makes no sense. And that's part of why they were suffering in school because things were making less and less and less sense. Like, mom, this doesn't make sense. This is what they're teaching me in school. This doesn't make sense. So now they're learning things at least that make sense. But who do they socialize with? What's the world they're going to go into? Um, thankfully, my eldest daughter has a job. That's a self-selection process in and of itself. The kids who are motivated enough to go and have a job and show up to work every day and so forth are different breed. And she mm. works at Chick-fil-A, which makes it a little bit better too. Um, really great work ethic. They, they select for that. So she's been working there for a year and she found a homeschooled social dance group. So they go on, like tonight, they go and they do swing dancing and all that kind of stuff. It's like 200 kids. It's a blast. Oh, wow. So she's, she's found you know a niche for herself. The other two... Not yet. Nope. And, you know, so they are a big driving force behind what I do because I've lived it. I've seen it. And I don't want, you know, when you've gone through things like this or you've seen your kids go through it you firsthand, you don't want anyone else to go through it. You don't want any, anybody else's kids to go through it. it. It just becomes a driving force. Like, you don't have to believe me, but just ask questions. You know, don't take my word for it, but please ask more questions. Get in touch with your kid, like really get down and have conversations about what they're talking about in school, what they're learning, what they're thinking about themselves. Because as I said in a video I just uploaded today, I, my number one concern is mental health. I think most of these kids, especially elementary age, would be better off coming home and watching Looney Tunes, to be perfectly honest with you. So reading books and watching Looney Tunes <laughs> would be healthier and they'd be happier little kids and probably learn more. Uh, vocabulary anyway, um, than going to schools now where they're so fixated on SEL and, and, you know, t talking, but even the most basic thing in life is trauma and then ignoring real trauma, not realizing they are traumatizing children. When you tell a child who they are and they don't agree and you don't allow them the freedom to disagree, um, it's a violation of their personhood. It really, it really is. It's a kind of psychological rape. You know, you're an oppressor. I don't feel like an oppressor. I like people. I like all people. I should have a, nope, it's because of something you can't control, the color of your skin or whatever. And to keep driving this point home is to, it's abusive. It'd be like a spouse saying to the spouse, you're ugly or you're a loser or you're not a good wife or whatever, you know, whatever. And if, it, and if it doesn't comport with reality, if you said, they go, but I do this and this and this and this, and the person goes, yeah, I know, but it's still true. We would all look at that and we would say that's abuse right out of the gate. Even if we're talking about things that the wife is supposedly doing, like you're a lousy cook or, you know, you're not pretty or you don't do that, you're letting yourself go, all the kinds of things. If it's negative and it's gratuitous and it serves, no, it doesn't relate to something they've done that was willful, we call it abuse. 
to tell a child because of the color of your skin, because of your Western, you know, or European heritage, because of your Christianity, because of your whatever it is, you have this original sin. You have this thing in you that you will be fighting against for the rest of your life and you owe the world a favor. You owe people something by virtue of your accident of birth. I think it is, I, 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 I think it's, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's abuse. And um, you don't think that legal um, methods of uh, suing schools and uh, engaging on a parent teacher thing and, and rallying as many parents as possible to show up and call this stuff out is the plan. You said no reformation. No, I don't, because um, not that I'm going to say don't do those things. I would never tell people don't do what feels right or don't do what is morally right. OK, if you have the money, if you have the time. But I will tell you that it is enormously expensive. Most people can't do it as a matter of you know cost and time and not to mention the stress it puts on your family and your children. So if if your goal is to help your individual children, hmm. it's not going to work for them. OK, it's not fast enough. It's not effective enough. And it's extremely costly on all fronts. So given that, and given we don't have a lots of lots and lots of Bill Gates and their children who are gonna go pay for these lawsuits and so forth, you're 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 talking about sort of um, you know, taking a spoon and trying to empty out the ocean. Okay. It just feels like the wrong way to go about it. When you look at the dollars and cents, if thirty percent I talked to a woman the other day from Oregon and she's been organizing this and she did the math. If 30% of the students unenroll in uh, in their district in Oregon, they would deprive that district of 2.5, I think it was billion dollars. <laughs> so in other words, the kids are attached to money yeah. when they show up. And when they don't show up, yes, there's some money they still will get for a while, but it it is a huge amount of money that is pulled out of the school. Since these people are motivated by money and jobs, it's basically a giant jobs program and a political action committee slash slush fund. And you're um, talking about the administrators and the teachers unions and so on and yeah, so forth. All, all of it. Okay. Yeah, all of it. Um, even the school boards. I mean, people don't understand that there's something called a school boards association. The school boards association is almost like another union because it has the same political values as the union. It pushes for the same causes as the union, but it organizes school board members and, you know, helps them. The, the union provides the money to help them get elected and the school board association provides the training to help people get elected. And all school board members are required by most most states, if not all, to go through the tr these kinds of trainings that these school board associations offer. Okay. And so they're kind of indoctrinated or inducted into this whole thing. So you can say, well, we're going to turn the school board. First of all, they're on staggered terms. So you can never turn a whole school board all at once. So you're staggering it. And are you ever going to really have the majority vote? How many years is it going to take to turn enough people to have a majority vote? And how much influence do you really have? School boards don't have influence in the classroom. What's really the problem is everybody who graduated Evergreen in an education program or any other college for that matter – um, was taught using Palafrieri and all these things. And I mean, they were teaching that when I was in grad school and I graduated in 90 from my master's. So, you know, all of these people are coming out of these teacher programs, having been indoctrinated that this is the right way to go, that they're doing something good, that they're helping. And they just fan out across the country into classrooms in every state. Doesn't matter if it's red, blue, purple, doesn't matter what color. The teachers are coming in with, I won't say it's a hive mind, but pretty close. Pretty, pretty close. Think about the population of a college and what percentage are conservative to begin with. 
in this age range. And then think about a teacher's college and what type of people go into these helping fields and social sciences and things like that. And then think about the professors at a college. And you can understand the magnitude of the problem in terms of indoctrination and how many people make it down into the classroom with their psyche intact, with their values intact, still prizing the Western Enlightenment and all of that, getting into the classroom. And now once they're there, their first year or second or whatever, they've got to deal with the weight of everybody the year ahead and so forth. And usually your contracts initially might be for a year. You want to get it renewed. And that's especially true if you're an administrator. Principals are on a year-to-year contract. Superintendents might have a longer contract, but they serve at the pleasure. There's only so much shaking up you can do. And if the union doesn't like you, they have lots of money to make sure your contract isn't renewed, to make sure teachers get fired. So the teachers who get fired are the ones like me. I didn't get fired, I just didn't get my contract renewed. Because mm-hmm. if you don't play ball, and you don't mm-hmm. do what they want, there you mm-hmm. go. So you end up having faculty that is so on board with all this, that even if you try to go on an individual teacher basis, I'm gonna sue this teacher, or I'm gonna sue the school, what are you replacing them with? Where are you gonna get all the teachers to replace them with? Meanwhile, all the teachers like Frank at Chalkboard Heresy and you know people like me and so forth, we're out there. We exist, okay? Retired teachers who have still have the similar values and they got time on their hands. There are people out there who would teach the things we want our kids to teach. But the only missing link here is we need the money to pay them. And people say, oh, it's too much. Well, the way to get the lawmaker's attention that the money needs to follow the kid is to get the kids out of the school. It's okay. very difficult to persuade people to change things when you're still using it. Like you're still showing up, you're still using it, please change, please change. Again, it's like you're still showing up to the abusive husband, what's his motivation to change? And I'm not talking about the really malignantly abusive. I mean, the guy was just mean. He's not gonna change as long as you're still there. We tell this to our friends. You know, if you had a friend who said, oh yeah, he's kind of mean, he doesn't show up, he's late, he's, you know, blows me off, he does this. You'd be like, break up with him. It's obvious. Like, why are you still there? He's not going to change. I mean, if if there's a hope in hell of him realizing how great you are and going, oh, my God, I get my shit together. It's not going to be while you're there. It's going to be while you're gone. And that's still a dim hope. And I feel the same about public school. So I just I take this approach because I truly believe it's the most effective. And I also, you know, I actually think when you break it down, it's actually not that extreme. I think what's more extreme is to believe that a system that's been in place and growing bigger and bigger and more expensive and more expensive every year and every year with worse and worse and worse results has any incentive whatsoever to change itself. I don't see it. I don't see the incentives aligning in the kids and the parents' favor. So I think believing that's true is like believing in unicorns. Whereas I think believing that you can, if you could accommodate your kid in the summer and you had a job, believing that you, a smart person, even with a high school diploma, can somehow figure it out find you and five other families or whatever, you pull your resources, you find a church basement, you know, you find a tutor or somebody, you know, help them with the reading or so forth. But it doesn't, it's not an eight hour day of teaching. What you have is a childcare problem. The teaching part is a whole separate thing, which is actually Mm -hmm. a lot easier to deal with than most people realize. So I'm trying to change people's minds about what education actually is, that it's different from schooling, that the problem they have is a childcare one, not an education one. And that they have more power than they than they know, that they've been kind of brainwashed into believing they're not smart enough, they're not capable enough, they are not expert enough to educate their own kids when they're the very best people to do it because they love their kids. 
They care. So if you don't know something, who's more likely to go, you know, I don't know how to do this. I better go figure out how to do this or find someone who does know how to do this, someone who actually cares about that child. There are teachers who have no idea to do how to do what they're doing and they just flub it because who's going to find out? We've seen how transparent it is. You have to file an FOIA request just to get a look at the lesson plans that are going on. They don't do they don't submit lesson plans anymore. They don't have a syllabus anymore. They don't have textbooks anymore. They'll even uh, go so far as to sue you in one case if you ask oh, yeah. for records. They'll, 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 and, yeah. And, and you know, that's a, a great example. I mean, what she's done is, is really interesting because... What's her name? Just for the camera. I can't recall off the top of my oh. head. I will put that in the video. It's Nicole Solis, who can be found on Twitter at Nicoletta0602. By filing all those requests... She exposed, and it all came back redacted, which was hilarious. She mm. exposed how it really is down at the teacher level because they said we're concerned about our teachers' individual privacy because these things were going on across emails, school email. It shows how the teachers sort of conspire together and work together at the teacher level, which you know puts the lie to the whole, we just changed the school board and everything will be fine. Not really. <laughs> Not that the teachers are there behind. They close their door, and who knows what's going on in there. Um in many cases, the kids are told, you know, like, don't tell your parents about this or that. My kids were told not to tell me about their EOGs. Don't discuss EOGs with anyone, including your parents. What's that? End of in- grade tests. Okay. Okay, they're the standardized tests they take in public school um, at, the, at the end of the grade. They, they have um, a beginning one, and then they have an end. And they were also told not to tell us about how the tests were done. They were color-coded. And... They told me, they said, oh, yeah, we, I got a harder test, and then this person got the easy test. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. What are you talking about? You're supposed to all get it's a standardized test. It's supposed to be the end of, you know, sixth grade or the end of seventh grade. And, and they're just like, no, we get different tests based on, you know, something. And I said, how do you know you're getting a harder tests? And they said, be, well, there were a couple reasons they knew. One was they would talk to their friends, because you can't make kids not talk to their friends. And they would talk about the questions they had and so forth. Now, you wouldn't expect them to have identical questions necessarily. And you certainly would expect them to be mixed up in order, but you can run a print of things with randomized order of questions. That's easy enough to do in a math test or reading test. Um, but they were asking about types of questions, like, oh, that question about blah, 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 was so hard. And the other kid would be like, what are you talking about? I didn't have any of that. I didn't have any of those. So they pretty quickly, what color did you have? Well, I had this. Well, I had this color. So they started through process of elimination and kind of discussing with, with, with each other that there were different levels of tests. And, you know, that's all I know. Because obviously, good luck finding out what that all means. But they, they took it. They're like, everybody knows that. Mom, you didn't know that. We're like, no, I didn't know that. And other parents don't know that either. And they said, oh, I wonder if that's how we're not supposed to talk about it. So they're telling our kids, don't talk to your parents about the EOGs. Don't tell them anything about it. It's really, really important. And we don't want anyone cheating. Well, if you don't want cheating, you don't need color codes. In fact, you wouldn't want color codes because you wouldn't want teachers finagling, right? You're like you would you would you wouldn't want the teachers to go, well, the yellow ones are harder than the blue ones or whatever, you know, and handing them out to different students. Also, what you might want to what I'm wondering is, do they give to easier to easier tests to some kids at the end of the school year to make it look like they've made progress? Do they give harder tests to the really smart kids at the end of the year for the same purpose to kind of flatten out that gap? Mm-hmm. Who knows? I can only hypothesize. So please nobody come at me and say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. The truth is I don't. I'm just telling you what my kids have told me. 
and I believe them because they, they treat it like it's so secret. It's so secret. And, um, I really don't understand it, <laughs> why it's so secret and why and we've all had standardized tests our whole lives. And it was just, here's your booklet. Here's your test. We sat next to other people and filled out their little things. And it, how could you read? But they're doing it on a computer. And I guess, with the, and it still has like sides on the computer. Like, I don't know how you even cheat. So this argument that like you could cheat, you'd have to go like this. Mm-hmm. How, how are you going to cheat? So whatever. Um, but I just don't see it working with piecemeal reforms. I really don't. I don't so know how that would. If you, well, I, I can. There's there's a lot of different kind of you know, game theory about this instigating uh, the parents to uh, divest right. uh, from uh, education, uh, which you kind of laid out. You have to split it into childcare and education. Education's uh, this set of problems. Childcare's this other set of problems. It's all fixable, but you do have to start taking responsibility. And you know, you, you, divesting from this institution is that you're going to have to start taking it, uh, taking it on right. yourself. But there's, there's help out there. Uh, but also just incentivizing on a mass scale uh, parents to do that. And once that starts happening, if you can get that to start happening, how would you get that to start happening? But once you start get that to happening, the blowback will be phenomenal. The, the, the way that the institution will come after uh, the citizens will be uh, incredibly tyrannical and incredibly telling. And so they're going to do everything possible to forestall that, but because their cards will be shown the moment that they start fearing for their livelihood, or once this beast starts fearing for its livelihood, it become pretty messy. Um, so what have you thought uh, about, you know, going forward, well, if you could I've just actually, like s- start that? I've thought about that. Um, and, and I still feel like the faster, the better in the sense that people on that side are very good at organizing, like really, really crazy good at it. So the slower we go, the Mm. longer they have to anticipate it and organize their tyranny, okay, and plan it and find all the lawyers who are going to help them do it and all that, Um, whatever else it would entail. The faster we do it, the less time they have to kind of like figure out what they're going to do. And if they try to do it, it'll likely be with like a giant, you know, sledgehammer, which will make it more obvious and then more likely that more people will step up and defend parents or defend people. My concern is if we're too piecemeal about it or go too slowly, that people are still going to feel the wrath. If you ask too many questions and you're like, what happened to me? And like, what's happening to this mom who got sued? You run the risk. They could take your kid. So you're not only leaving your child in a potentially abusive situation, but you're putting yourself on the radar of the state every single day in a state we already know is classifying people as extremists and, you know, possible domestic, you know, whatever you want to call it, because they don't agree with things that are going on. They're referring to whole groups of people as the unvaccinated or the this or the that, you know, if they're already classifying people who question what's going on with the detainees from January 6th. If you just say like, why are they still in jail? If you can make it on the radar that way. Now imagine your kid is in the school and you're asking too many questions that you start to get pretty strident because your kid's coming home every day and telling you more and more stories about critical theory and whatever. And it's possible you could lose your job. It's possible you could, you know, they could come to your house and say, you know, like, we're concerned that you're in, you know, that this isn't a proper home and we're going to keep your kid or who knows what they could do, especially with the trans ideology, because 
if it's suggested that you're not affirming enough or you're not accepting enough or your child is making noises like they might be non-binary and you're not accepting it, this is a hostile environment for your child. I'm worried that once you're in that scenario, you could lose your child. I'm sincerely concerned about that. What had happened to hundreds of people? I don't know. But you're in there. there it's kind of like possession is nine-tenths of the law. Like they've got your kid. And the other thing I'm concerned about is, like I said, they have that time to organize and come up with strategies and come up with other ways to um, hang on to their power. And not to mention the chaos it would create for people's lives. We're already seeing it where you send them back. You say, well, I'm going to fight within the system. And then, oh, your child was exposed. 14 days, they can't come to school. You're left with a, with a chaotic child care problem anyway. Yeah. Now, how, how many times is that going to happen? Once every two months? I mean, are, we, are you going to be like 14 days you have to leave work and find some solution? So in all the while, your child is this forgotten human in the middle of this battle. So I, you know, it's, you kind of have two crappy choices. Put your kid in and try to work with it and see if you can come up with some piecemeal reforms mm -hmm. and just get them through it, especially if they're far into it. They're 10th grade, 11th grade. You might think, oh, I'm just going to do it. And then... The other side is I got to start fresh and do everything myself. And no matter how, I, you know, I do the little Ben Franklin thing, pros, cons, pros, cons. And I still come out on the side, even for those older kids, of it's worth it for their peace of mind and their mental health. I saw what happened in just a couple years to my kid. It, that's all it took. And actually, it didn't even take that long for my youngest. So she was just became a, she was this bubbly, lively, outgoing kid, super outgoing. And she just became like hiding in a room on her phone, whatever. And mm. even though she's homeschooled now, it's still like, it's hard to bring back the kid. So once that kind of damage is done, it's really hard to get them back to where they were. They develop a kind of hard shell, a defensiveness, a, a cynicism, a fear, an anxiety about other people, about their place in the world um, that I do not see with kids who've been homeschooled all the way through. I just don't see it. And that said... I do see them getting better, you know, little bits every day. It's just not fast. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. So I don't see a benefit to leaving them in there, you know, and the younger they are, I definitely don't see it. I definitely don't see it. I think it's going to get worse. Actually, I don't think it's going to be better. Um, the, the kids are going to start being more aggressive than they've been because of these teachings. So I, that's, that's kind of where I fall. And I know that that puts me at odds with a lot of people. So I'm very honest about it because I don't want to... Um, Do you mind being at odds with a lot of people? No, I've never minded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of picked that up. <laughs> I left teaching. <laughs> so um, I don't... I, I only mind because in the sense that um, I do sincerely want to help. And so if, if, if I'm at odds and people are giving and, and telling me like, here are my reasons I disagree with you and so forth and so on. Like, okay. But if anyone would suggest that I'm, you know, just anti-teacher or anti this or anti, like, I don't want people to perceive it as I'm anti anything except child abuse. And that's it. Other than that, I'm pro-child, I'm pro-humanist, I'm pro, um, you know, enlightenment, I'm pro, you know, classical liberal values. I'm pro all the things I thought we were in America. I'm very pro-American in that sense. I'm, I feel like I'm philosophically American, as somebody said the other day on another show. Hmm. Um, yeah. Geographically, no, but I mean, that's irrelevant to me. I'm not a fan of, I don't, I don't 
I'm not a patriot because of geography. I'm a patriot because of the ideas, individualism, things like that. And I think that's the birthright of every child in America, even if they weren't born here. If you're a child growing up in America, that is your right, is to be an individual and to, you know, enjoy the blessings of liberty. And I think it's our job as adults to help secure those for our children. I don't think we're doing a good job. I don't think we're securing the blessings of liberty. I feel like we're handing them over. We're handing over our children's birthright for the sake of perceived security or social acceptance or, you know, lack of, of, of stress or problem or whatever you want to call it. And I don't mean to belittle it. In some people's cases, it's a very real fear they're going to lose their job. I understand that. I mean, I'm basically unemployable. Um, if I don't get you know, some work on the side and do different things. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to get a job. Okay. Um, but it, I still think I want people to balance that fear or at least ask the question, where does that fear measure up with my fear that my someday 18 year old child will then be an adult will think I'm the enemy, not want to have anything to do with me or just be at complete odds with everything I value and believe in that possibility exists and it may well be beyond my control. Yeah, the state can take the child away from you without removing them from your home. Correct. And that's what I see happening more and more. I'm doing uh, a show on Saturday with four parents whose kids suddenly announce they're trans and they're in their mid to late teens. So whereas before and, and in most cases, they're like last kid you'd ever imagine. In other words, it was not a kid that, you know, early in life knew or anything like that. We're talking about kids who had what they seem to have in common is they had some kind of a setback, some kind of a disappointment. Something didn't go their way. And almost overnight, I want hormones. I am trans. And um, so the parents are fighting a battle like they have to come on anonymously. They have to use pseudonyms because they're sincerely afraid their kids will be taken from them. Those who are under 18. They're concerned that the ones that are close to 18 are just going to go on when they're, when they turn 18, they've got a limited amount of time to save their kids. And they, Mm -hmm. since they genuinely believe their kids are in danger. And you think that that comes from uh, the social environment inculcated within the school system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's what is my understanding. That is what they believe. And um, they think it is um, they're 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 worried their kids are going to make a permanent decision, find it like a permanent solution to a temporary problem, a kind of a suicide, but without dying. It's like a death of the self. Similar to anorexia. I mean, anorexia is like a slow suicide. You know, it's like a way of halting your maturity. You know, it's a way of of kind of controlling things from what I learned about it and dealing with it. It is a reaction to stress in your environment in many, many cases. And it and as with this uh, rapid onset gender dys- dysphoria, um, apparently the thing they have, seem to have in common, um, because there's body dysmorphia or dysphoria, well, I don't know which word it is, right, is the right one, but is that um, there's a high risk for people who are on the spectrum at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, it took until my daughter had anorexia to get her diagnosis that she was on the spectrum. It, w- it went. I just thought she was really, really quirky and kind of nerdy. But as it turned out, she was on the spectrum. And um, that may be one of the reasons she was so susceptible. Um, but we do. That's a reality in life. There are a number of kids out there who are on the spectrum and it, they don't necessarily have the same way of processing social cues and information and dealing with, you know, managing their emotions. So they're highly suggestible. Mm -hmm. They want to fit in, but they don't know how to think about all of that. 
the same way that kids who are neurotypical do. So, and that's not to say neurotypical kids have an easy job or an easy task in all this either, because, you know, first of all, if they have a sibling in that situation, then they're going suffering along with their sibling. If they don't agree, they have to stifle themselves. My youngest is neurotypical, but she just had to keep her mouth shut. She's like, mom, there's just certain things you don't say. There's certain things you don't do. You know, you walk through the halls and you don't make eye contact with these people or those people, or you don't, you never use this word or you never talk about that subject. I'm like, Hmm. This sounds like prison. This doesn't sound like a learning environment. This doesn't sound like the socialization that anybody wants for their kid. And then when you realize the government is running it all, no, it's still happening in private schools, but that it's your tax dollars paying for it, I guess, is my point. So if, if it's private, you would hope that you have a little more say, or at least you can, you know, you can leave and not stop spending your money or something, but they're taking the money. It's confiscated. Your child is conscripted to be there or you have to make another arrangement. That's the part I have such a problem with. It's just immoral, you know? Um, and some people have said, um, some people, pretty high profile people like Mark Levin, you know, you own the schools, you pay for them, you know, you got to take them back. They're your employees. And I'm like, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice set of talking points. It just doesn't happen to be true. We don't own them in any meaningful sense of the word. Hmm. When you own, I mean, just like you don't really own your house if you have a big mortgage, <laughs> you know, the bank owns it right? You're paying the bill, but if you miss a payment or it's whatever, or maybe your HOA theoretically owns it if you don't mow your grass, right? So it, with schools, it's that on steroids. Yes, you're paying in because it's the law. You have to. You don't own it. When you own something, you have the right to say no. You have a right to take your dollars and go somewhere else. Walmart pisses you off, as Corey DeAngelis is fond of saying, you can take your money to Target or whatever. You can't do that with public schools. So how is it ownership? So what are some of the uh, resources, and you can uh, drop your own channel here, that you uh, <laughs> think that parents should know or people who are interested in this topic? Well, I, yes. I mean, I do have my video, my channel on YouTube is The Reason We Learn. I have a locals community at thereasonwelearn.locals.com. What I offer the, the people who join there is two Zoom calls a week, for my supporters, you know, it's just nominal support, whatever. And you can come to that Zoom call with questions, concerns, you're looking at curriculum, you're just trying to, you know, feel better about it, you need moral support, whatever it is you need. You'll meet other homeschooling parents who are new to it. I cater to an audience of people who are brand spanking new to this. Brand spanking new. This is this is really hard for them and they need, you know, moral support to get through it. So that's what I'm trying to do is provide that at a, you know, through these channels. And you, they can post, they can ask questions and so forth. I also have a homeschool resource list that lists a lot of, you know, curriculum resources and groups and so forth. But I always recommend to people to avail themselves of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. It is a very low annual membership fee, but you get legal support. If they, if anybody ever harasses you or tells you, you know, you need to do this or that or the other, they will help you. That is what they're there for. The Homeschool sure. Legal Homes Defense. HSLDA.org. HSLDA.org. Homeschool Legal Defense um, Association. And they're wonderful. Their website is one of the best resources for any of this, to find out your state's homeschool laws, to find out what kind of homeschool associations you might be able to join within your state or co-ops or groups for support, support groups, to find out what you can get for help for special needs. If your child had an IEP, an individual education plan in public school, you may be eligible in your state, maybe, not every state has it, for some funding. Um, you may be eligible for, for grants from HSLDA to help with homeschooling special needs kids. 
Um, there are also nonprofits that you could be connected with and so forth. So again, it's not easy. It's really not easy, but it's actually fairly simple in the sense that, you know, people think it's, oh my God, it's be so complicated, but there are so many people who are out there to help, who mm -hmm. want to help mm -hmm. that, um, you know, you, you'll, you'll find help. You just have to ask for it. And I think people are so used to not doing that and just drop your kid off at the zip code zone school and there you go, that it's a new, it's a learning curve. It's a new set of behaviors. It's a new set of thought, you know, thoughts they have to have. But that's why I say, what did you do for summer? What did you do when your kid was a toddler and you needed daycare? What did you do? You know, it's a similar process, a few more steps, but once you do it, in other words, once you set it up, then it has a way of, you know, kind of supporting itself. Okay. So that's the, that's the trick. Um, there's all, any stereotype you've ever heard about it, put that right out of your mind. Homeschool is not one thing. It's not around the kitchen table and with mom staying home. No, no. Increasingly there are micro schools, pods, co-ops, um, churches are running out space. There are more black homeschoolers than ever before as well. Um, there's a huge surge in the black homeschooling community. Good. They're not all Christian, lots of secular homeschoolers, every conceivable political persuasion. And you can choose what method you use. You can even choose what method you use for each kid. Like some kids really love rote learning and they want to sit and do worksheets. And some kids want to just, you know, do things a little differently. You can even you set have, up an activist uh, for your for your one activist kid who wants to go out You absolutely could. You, you know, pick something for them to do that's healthy. That they, they want to be involved in their community. There are myriad ways they can do that without necessarily diving into politics before it's age appropriate. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I say that, yes, I'm biased, but I do think that political activism is for people who have a basic core understanding for how things work currently and, you know, at least a rudimentary understanding of why they are the way they are now before you go, you know, being an activist for changing them. Hmm. It's just being responsible. It's scientific method. You know, if you want to really understand why science is so important, this is, to me, this is why. Because you need to teach your kids how to look at a problem and break it down so that you can solve it. The way that critical theory does things is to like, we need to take the toaster. I, if I want to know how a toaster works, I can take the toaster and take it a completely apart down to the nuts and bolts and then try to, you know, and then say, oh, well, this is garbage. <laughs> and throw it out. Instead, what we should do is see, let's see, it's metal. It's got a little knobby thing. There's some numbers, it plugs in the walls. So that means it gets power. Turn it on. Oh, look, that heats up. What do you put in there? What fits in there? That's the scientific method. They're not doing that. They're saying first we got to criticize it. We got to take everything apart and destroy it. Assume it's bad. Oh my God, something isn't work the way I want it to work. Must be bad. Never questioning whether things are supposed to always work the way you want them to work. Never questioning the the premise that we should all be equal, like equal outcomes. Why is that desirable? Can't we ask the question? And in today's schools, no, you can't ask the question. You know. Can we read Harrison Bergeron? Maybe that will prompt the question. So, hmm. you know, then you can get your little activists involved in whatever they want to be involved in. But first, they need to be able to have at least some skills at using reason and logic and scientific method. I don't think that fifth graders know enough about anything to be saying who they want to vote for for president. I think it's kind of ridiculous, actually. And Let alone um, their sexuality. Right. I mean... These kids, 25 is about the age when your brain is fully formed. 25. 
that is not to say that 18-year-olds, you know, can't make intelligent decisions or even 17-year-olds. It's just that we need to be mindful of reality of brain science. And and we know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you've read um, the book by Jonathan Haidt and, and Greg Lukianoff about the, you know, okay, coddling the American mind. But according to them, today's 18-year-old is a little bit more like a 15-year-old in, you know, Gen X or whatever. So let's be realistic. Let's accept reality. I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. It is what it is. Our kids who are, are who they are, the situation in society, it is what it is. Let's stop pretending it's other than it is. And one of the first things I want people to stop pretending is that just because public school was good enough for you or because you had a good experience or because people don't have enough money for, you know, like all these problems outside yourself, that that makes it okay to keep doing it. We don't continue doing things that don't make sense because we've always done them or worked for us, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. That's, that's a problem. I hear that a lot. What will we do about the poor kids? And like, if every individual parent or group of parents decided what to do for their individual kid, what was best for their individual kid, we'd already have a better country. Like we already would. Worry about your own kids. Worry about what's going to happen in your own household and keeping that healthy and happy and thriving and safe and all of that and making your decisions without worrying about what other people are doing. And imagine if millions of people did that simultaneously. I just think we'd already have a better a better world. So. What do you do that... Uh, not to say that this isn't fun. What do you do for fun? Uh, that's... Yeah. <laughs> well, I really love um, watching kind of ridiculous comedy. Like I'm sort of a, <laughs> I sort of unwind watching things like Family Guy and American okay. Dad and like things that are <laughs> South Park. Um, believe it or not, I just finished watching Firefly. I was late to the party <laughs> on Firefly. Did you and I absolutely it? Oh, I loved it. And I watched Serenity too. And I loved it. I was like, this is so timely. I want to be on that ship. I want to be in that crew. Um, <laughs> But I, I try to just, you know, comedy, like lighthearted stuff like that. I do like to read, but I lately find myself reading stuff for this work. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah, not exactly yeah. fun. Um, I like to, um, you know, I just like to hang out with my family. Hmm. Sometimes we play a game where it's like we pretend to be the other person. So we kind of like do this uh, game where, you know, who am I? And they act like, you know, one of the other members of the family. Just it, it's a fun way to see how we see each other and we get the biggest laughs. And my kids are so great at it. They're like my youngest, especially. And she'll just like open a door, stick her head in, look around. It's like, this is you, mom. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's so obvious. Like she does think, who is this? And I'm like, oh, my God, you know me. You know? <laughs> so um, you would, and I love to I love to hike. Hmm. I love to be outside. That's basically it. <laughs> That's me in a nutshell. Sounds pretty American. Yeah, basically, <laughs> pretty pretty basic. Um, but yeah, this is this is what I've decided. I started it as a way of releasing tension. I guess I saw things going on. I'm like, this is crazy. I'm going to start a YouTube channel. Maybe no one will watch, but who cares? And it just kept growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. And here I am. So, mm. well, thank you for coming on and uh, giving my audience a chance to hear your ideas and and your experience. Well, thanks for having me. I hope uh, if I can help anybody, please let me know through locals or even email. Um, I really do want to try to help as many people as needed. I'm one person, but I can find other resources. And we will also be having an event on the 28th at noon Eastern time on my channel. It's going to be a panel discussion, members of HSLDL. 
HSLDA will be there. And it's a homeschool 101 kind of a thing. Oh, we're cover, oh Yeah, we're going to cover like the legal aspects. We're going to cover special needs and all kinds of different topics, FAQ kind of a thing. And because it will be live, people can come with questions. Mm-hmm. And say the date and time again. It, it will be August the 28th at noon. Okay. At noon Eastern time. Okay. On the reason we learned. Which day of the week is that? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I believe it's, uh, let's see, is it a Saturday or Sunday? Let's double check. Um, it is a Saturday. The 28th. Well, mm-hmm. cool. But this is going to be great. This is a good, good episode. So thank you yeah. for the content. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) In the uh, discussion, if you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.